I want to welcome everyone to kind of an interesting gathering here among our community groups. Welcome all the college students, all those who are visiting. If you're visiting one of the community groups, we're grateful that you're here and present. It kind of is a snapshot for us, an opportunity for us as a church, now that we've been growing for quite a bit. Uh, it gives us an opportunity to experiment even though the circumstances uh, were not planned, it gives us an opportunity to experiment potential church plant sites in the future. And uh, I'm glad to see so many people gathered uh, here. And uh, we, are, we thought to proceed to kick off our new sermon series in the book of Ephesians. We'll be doing this throughout the course of the entire year of 2018. Uh, and uh, so I welcome you to join in and begin this journey of Ephesians with me. I'm going to read chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. I know that the facilitator probably read verses 1 to 4 already, but I'm going to read verses 3 to 4 one more time as we enter into our time of, of hearing from God's Word. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For... He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, Ephesians 1 is interesting because verses 3 to 14 are actually one long sentence in the Greek. One long run-on sentence, which is why in our translations it's broken up into sentences. Now, it's an amazing book, and I've been dying to get into this book ever since we launched as a church. Chapters 4 to 6, the latter half of the book, are very applicable, very applicative, very uh, prescriptive. Tells us how to be in community, how to serve in community, how to communicate, how to deal with one another, how to change. It deals with relationships, marital relationships, work relationships. It deals with spiritual struggles, prayer. Basically, chapters 4 to 6 tell us how to do church. But it's pretty clear uh, very much right in the middle of the book, we recognize that chapters 4 to 6 build on top of chapters 1 to 3. In other words, what the author is trying to tell us here is that you cannot live the Christian life practically without a proper foundation. And so this uh, kind of strange word that we rarely use explicitly here at church, but everything we do is really built on top of it, uh, that strange word is doctrine. That's the purpose of doctrine. It's why we need doctrine. All the nuances, they all matter. Now, today in our society, we say, who cares what we believe? What matters is how we live. But the Apostle Paul never said that. He's the author of Ephesians. And Ephesians says something completely different. The book of Ephesians says that what you believe drives how you live. And it's true. Think about this. If you believe that we're just molecules molecules and chemicals that came together by chance, randomly, chaos, and there's no afterlife, and there's no heaven, there's no hell, then what does it really matter how you live? How your morality, how is your morality or, or your goodness any different from, some, from someone else's immorality or evil? Uh, what really is a good life uh, if you're just random chemicals that have come together chaotically? Now, we have no right then to say what is good. We have no right to say then what is evil. There's no basis of even talking about what a good life is unless you discuss the origins of a good life, the foundations of a good life. 
which means you need to understand life in a way that goes beyond what you see, beyond visible reality. And that's chapters 1 to 3. So for the most of, two, most, uh, of 2018, we're going to get into Ephesians, and we're going to see the meaning of church. And the latter half, we're going to talk about how to do it. Now, it's lots of good stuff. I want you to kind of walk through this journey, hopefully throughout the duration of the year. I want you to savor uh, from this week on. In chapter 1, we're going to see salvation. Salvation from God's point of view. And in chapter 2, we're going to see salvation from man's point of view, from a human point of view. It's what scholars say, what scholars call the order of salvation, ordo salutis. Chapter 1, we're going to see what God has done, what God has accomplished. Verses 4 to 6, he elects us, he chose us, he calls us, he adopts us. In verses 7 to 12, he redeems us by his blood. He forgives us. He forgives our sins. In verses 9 to 14, we're marked, meaning that we're kept safe with a seal. We're brought into glory. And then we go into chapter 2. And chapter 2 begins with what? Our deadness in sin. This is salvation from our perspective. Our deadness in sin. And then, by God's grace alone, we're made alive. Then there's faith. Then there's deeds and works, all in Christ. Now, chapter 1, we said salvation from God's point of view. Chapter 2, what happens, the result, salvation from our perspective. But we're going to begin with God's perspective. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, two points, what it means to be chosen. And the ways that we object to that, the ways that we resist that, and scattered through our objections, we're going to bring about some amazing truths that come out of that to call us out. So we're going to see what it means to be chosen and truths that come out of our objections, our resistance to that. First, what it means to be chosen. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in, in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. What Paul's saying here is that there's no greater joy, there's no greater honor, every spiritual blessing, everything good that you'll ever have, everything good that you could ever imagine to have comes from being in Christ. There's nothing good that means. There's nothing good that you could ever have apart from being in Christ. But then you get to verse 4. Why? Why is every spiritual blessing? Why do we receive these things? Verse 4. 4, which means because a Christian has every blessing. Why? Verse 4. 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ. In other words, it's because he chose us. Why do we have every spiritual blessing? Because he chose us. Now, on the outside, that presents some objections. But I want to share with you, this is the most comforting truth in your life if you can grasp it, if you can see it. Why don't we see it? Well, why don't we see it? Because just about every movie, just about every newspaper, uh, whenever you see the image of a church or a pastor, uh, I learned this because we actually took a class in seminary, and what we did was we picked out at least 25 movies that were played in the mainstream at that moment in time. Every time you saw the image of a church or a pastor or a priest, what they shared, their counsel, what they say is so disconnected. What they said is so outdated. Why? It's the media's way of saying that, that we're skeptical of the church. 
We're skeptical of God. Our hearts are so naturally skeptical towards God. But the Bible over and over brings this truth to the front. Election. The entire book of uh, the Ephesians rests on this truth. So you can't just dismiss it. It wouldn't, be, it wouldn't be why. It's not just a matter of wisdom. Uh, it would be unintelligent to dismiss it. And if you see it, if you grasp it, it's going to be an amazing comfort. It's going to be an amazing comfort that leads to an amazing joy for you. Now, come on, you know me. Uh, as a pastor of this church, I am very careful about choosing my theological battles. So you know that if I'm addressing this, it has to be important. Now, in verse 3, the Apostle Paul saying, why do some people have these blessings? Why are some people blessed with every spiritual blessing? And he answers this in verse 4. He says, because God chose them. Because God chose us. Now, we like to say, but I accepted Jesus. I chose to follow Jesus. But that's chapter 2. That's the human viewpoint. And even there, the Apostle Paul says, by sheer grace, you've been saved through faith, not of your works. Paul's saying, you chose him because he chose you. Now, a lot of us have a hard time reconciling what it means to accept Jesus with God choosing us first. How do we reconcile this? That I accepted Christ with God choosing me at the same time? The answer is this. They both happen in a sense, but one of them is primary and the other is secondary. Both of them happen, but one of them is causal. One of them triggers. The other is the result. Now, think about this. If your foundational reason for why you're a Christian is I chose God, I accepted God, I decided to follow him. It's the same thing as saying, I worked. I, I decided. I did something. I accomplished something. And the others, those other people, they didn't do that. I chose God. I accepted Christ. I decided to follow him. Uh, and, and that's against the whole of the Bible. Because the entire Bible says what? Every choice you've ever made, every decision you've ever made, every work that you've ever done apart from Jesus, apart from God, is really against God, is really apart from God, running from God, a way of saving yourself. You cannot make yourself a Christian. If you could, you wouldn't have needed Jesus. You don't need the Holy Spirit. And this is the foundational difference between Christianity and every other religion. Buddhists, they follow the Eightfold Path. What is the Eightfold Path? Essentially, you have to make yourself a Buddhist. Islam follows the five pillars, the five pillars of Islam. What is that essentially? You have to make yourself a Muslim. Christianity is totally different. You want to be a Christian? You can't even make yourself a Christian unless God, by his grace alone, opens your heart. Any of the world religions will say, you need to change yourself, but not Christianity. Christianity never underestimates your sin, your inability. Christianity never, ever overestimates your ability. So that's the first truth, right? The first truth is there is no room for pride. There is no room for arrogance if you're a Christian. We're all here by God's sheer grace. So if you believe that God's work is primary and your work is secondary, 
then God's grace becomes very special to you. It becomes very amazing to you because there's very little difference between you and the next person, almost no difference between you and the next person. And uh, save for God's grace alone. There's a fullness that comes with that. There's a freedom that comes with that. There's a peace when you realize that you've become a Christian by God's sheer grace, by his work alone, not your work. On one hand, it's going to remove your pride because it's going to humble you. On the other hand, it's going to give you a bit of a sense of humor. Why? You can laugh at yourself. If you really get your sin and you really get God's grace, you're always going to be able to say, no matter how mature you are, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long you've been in the church, you'll always be able to say at the end, why me? So the doctrine of God's sovereignty and his election and grace alone means what? That you can always laugh at yourself because you're going to say, this is the most amazing, almost joke. I'm a joke. That's what you can say. Deep inside, you know that you're a joke because you're a sinner, and yet there's this great gap between your sin and God's holiness, and yet God, in his infinite grace, reached down and saved you, and you can say, why me? And you can laugh at yourself all the time because you know you never deserved it. This is a steal, you say. You were blind. God opened your eyes. That means anything that you see about yourself that we often hate to see about ourselves, anything that we see, God opened those things to you. And it's the result of his choice. In John chapter 3, you have Jesus. He's talking with Nicodemus. And what does he say to Nicodemus? He says, Nicodemus, you must be born again even to see the kingdom. That means every time you have insight about your own sin, every time you have any insight about God, any time you have any insight about salvation, about your own sin and God's grace, every time you see yourself or who you really are, that's an amazing thing. That's a miracle. There's this place in Romans chapter 8, one of my favorite passages, Romans chapter 8, verses uh, 29 to 30. He says, uh, the apostle Paul writes this, those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he justified, and those he justified, he glorified. Those he foreknew, he predestined. What does that mean? People look at that passage and they say, you see, what that means is that God looked down the great hall of time, himself on one end, me at the other end, and he just knew that some people would choose him. He just knew it. And so, he chose them. He elected them because he knew they were going to choose him. But there's a logical problem with that, you see. Because number one, logically, why would God go to such great lengths to fix something that can already fix itself? That lessens and demeans almost the significance of Jesus coming down. Jesus going to the cross and our need for the cross. Do you see that? But second, if you look carefully at this verse, right, Romans chapter 8, 29 to 30, if you look carefully at those verses, it doesn't say that God predestined them because he foreknew them. Because the word foreknew, right, to foreknow someone, it's not about I knew about this person. It's not that God looked down that infinite corridor and saw us and he said, oh, I see him, I know him now, I know about this person intellectually. It's not about that. As in, I never knew about you before. The word foreknow is a relational word. 
It's a love word. What he's saying is that before God, before the creation of the world, God was intimate with you. To know someone in the Bible is a very relational word. It means to forelove that person. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do all these things for you? And Jesus says to these people, I'll say, Depart from me, I never knew about you? No, that's not what he says. He says, No, I never knew you. I was never intimate with you. That means that from the beginning, God looked through the corridors of time and he loved us. Before we even knew him, before we were ever looking for him, when we were running away from him, sometimes angry at him, blaming him, complaining about him, criticizing him. And that's the reason why we're here today. Because God, before the creation of the world, foreloved us. Because he loved us. Before the creation of the world. And as a result, you say, I believe. That's the first point. God chose us. Now, the last point is what I'm going to do is I'm going to outline the ways that we often, most often resist it, the objections to this notion that God chooses us as primary and then we choose him secondary, right? The ways that we resist it. And from there, we're going to bring out some amazing truths. First, a lot of people say, well, that means uh, I struggle with free will. What does that mean about free will? Does that mean that we don't have free will? Not true. Not at all. That's not what the teaching says at all. What is free will? Free will means that we choose what we want to do. That's free will. The Bible never says that human beings can't choose God. The Bible says when given the choice, human beings don't want to choose God. It's not that we're incapable of choosing God. It's worse than that. We're capable of choosing God, and we don't want to. We don't want God. Romans chapter 3 says this, there is no one who seeks God, not even one. Romans 8 says there's a hostility that we have towards God. But I genuinely, I genuinely try to obey God. I genuinely believe I'm worshiping God. Yes, you obey God. But where do you really go? Where do you really go when it counts? Where do you really go when it hits you? Where do you really go when you're hurting? Meaning, why are there times when we don't obey? It's because at that moment, something else has become more important than obeying God. Something else has become more important than following God. Something else has become more important than pursuing God or going to God or seeking God or running to God into his embrace. Why do we do that? Look, God doesn't just want us to keep the rules. He wants you. He doesn't want you just to follow his commandments. He wants you because he's the king. And as a king, he owns all things. Tim Keller, he says this, here's a lion. He put a lion in front of a bowl of piping hot oatmeal uh, for breakfast on his right. And on his left, you put a piece of raw meat there. And you give him a thousand opportunities to make a choice. Which one's he going to choose? Every zoologist in the world is going to tell you that the lion is capable of eating oatmeal, 
but he never will. He'll never choose it. A thousand times out of a thousand because it is, it's his nature as a carnivore. It's his nature not to want oatmeal. It's his nature to want meat. It's his nature to eat meat. And as a result, uh, here's another example. Here are 20 people. They're walking up the ramp. And at the end of the ramp is a fiery furnace. And they're blindfolded and they're walking along. And it's kind of like this like escalator. It's kind of taking them away and they're kind of walking along. And, uh, uh, you know, as you see at the end of that ramp, one by one they start dropping into this furnace. And they're dying. And so you run up to them and you say, listen, you've got to stop walking. You're, don't, can't you tell you're going into a furnace? Can't you feel the heat? You're going to die. If you don't listen to me, you're going to die. And they say, no, 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 I'm not going to listen to you. They say, it's ridiculous. We're on our way to Miami. I can tell it's getting warmer right now. What does it need? Somebody needs to come and pull the blindfolds off because they don't even realize they have blindfolds on. Then they look and say, wait a second, that's not Miami. Why am I walking into a furnace? This is crazy. Do they feel forced? No. And this is the second amazing truth. In God's election, God is not taking away your mind or your choice or your freedom here. God is giving a person back his mind. He's giving a person back his senses so that you, he's basically empowering you, if anything, so that your senses and your heart and your mind, with a fuller sense, you can make the right choice. God is giving a person his mind back. So this doctrine doesn't take away your will. This doctrine doesn't take away your mind. It actually rebalances everything so you can make the best choice. Does that make sense? Now, the second thing that people often say is, election, God choosing me, it seems unfair. And I get it. Eternal life is a gift. And uh, when you receive that gift, you kind of look around and you say, well, you know, I get that I, I have this gift. Something grabbed me, something shook me, something remade me. But we often start to think, it seems a little unfair. Why did God choose some people and not choose other people? And the reality is it's not unfair because it would only be unfair only if, some, if everybody deserved it in the first place. For example, here are five people. They're all acquaintances of yours. And they say to you, we're tired of working and we're late on our mortgages and we're late on our car payments and our wives are pregnant. And so I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to go and rob a bank. And you respond, are you nuts? Are you crazy? You can't do that. Do you realize what's going to happen to you? There are lots of risks here. And you plead with them and you beg them not to go, but they're set. They're just completely blind and they're dead set. They say, we're gone. It's as good as done. So what do you do? You run over to these acquaintances. You chase after your two close friends. You knock them out. You tie them to your chair until uh, they come to their own senses. Now, the rest of those guys, they're off doing what they're set on doing. And in the process, they kill some of the patrons, they kill some of the guards, and they get caught. And they're on trial, and they're in prison, and they're sentenced to death. And you, and you overhear them saying, this is so unfair. If you, if you rescue two of us, you should have rescued all of us. We're here because you didn't stop us all. Now, come on, we all know that's ridiculous. And here's the third truth. We all have God alone to be thankful for. And everyone else on death row have themselves to blame because God is not obligated to take any of us. 
You see that? It's not unfair. None of us deserve this. It would be unfair if we all deserved it and we didn't receive. But none of us deserved it. You see that? And that leads us to the third objection, the why do anything at all? Why pray? Why evangelize? I mean, if everything's been predetermined, if everything's been predestined, why pray at all? Jesus has already done it. That's a good argument, right? Obviously not. Obviously not because uh, it's not that simple. Remember, Ephesians chapter 1 is salvation from God's perspective. So here's an example. You and your family decide to go away on a trip. Uh, you ran out of cabin. It's freezing outside. So you've got to stay in this cabin. And you say to your child, you're going to come out with me and we're going to cut some firewood. Because if we don't cut this firewood, we're going to freeze to death. You're going to go on mission with me. Now, uh, I know you've never done this. I know you're weak. I know you're practically unable. But I'm choosing you to come and do this with me. And so you go out. You bring your child with you. And he just kind of sits there. He doesn't do anything. And so you tell him, listen, I'm going to be right back, but I want you to go. I'm going to come back. I want you to go, and I want, you to, I want you to move forward. I want you to cut this firewood. And after an hour later, you come back, and your child's just sitting there. He doesn't do anything. Why doesn't he do anything? You ask him, why aren't you doing anything? And he says, well, there's really no incentive. Because I know that even if I don't do anything, you're going to do it anyways. I mean, you're a good father. You love us. You're not going to let us die. You're not going to let us freeze to death. I have no incentive to do this. What's in it for me? What's the incentive? Here's the fourth truth. In Christ, you are so secure that you can't do anything to screw up. Not ultimately. I mean, you may have messed up. You might have messed up uh, at some point in your life. You might have felt like you messed up at some point in your life. But when you come to Christ, you can't do anything to screw up your life in an ultimate sense. God will never, there's nothing you can do. You will never be so far from God that you'll be out of his grasp. God will never let you go. In John chapter 21, you have Peter, the apostle Peter. He betrays Jesus in an ultimate sense. I mean, he just messes up badly compared to all of his friends. And it costs Jesus his own life. And Jesus now, the resurrected Jesus, goes to Peter and he says, do you love me? Three times. And Peter responds three times, I love you. And Jesus three times says, I want you to feed my sheep. That means after failing miserably, leading to Jesus' suffering, leading to the cross, leading to his, his, his uh, death, Jesus says, I am going to entrust you with my treasure, my sheep. I'm going to give you my keys, the car keys. In other words, you're going to stretch out your hands, he says, and someone else is going to dress you. Someone else is going to lead you to where you did not want to go. You're going to be like me. You're going to build your life on a pattern of my suffering, on a pattern of my death. Now, before, Peter's incentive was what? A payout. I'm going to be Jesus' right-hand man. The payout. Or before, Peter's incentive was fear. I've got to save myself. I've got to run away. I'm going to betray Jesus. What's our incentive for obedience? What's our incentive for doing it if Jesus predetermined anything anyway? And this is the fifth truth. Your incentive, first of all, will never be fear or coercion. Your, your incentive should never have been that. What it should be is that you have a father who is able 
You have a Father who is capable. You have a Father who is all-loving. You have a Father who is trustworthy. That yes, He's not going to let you free. He's not going to let you go. He's not going to let you die. But He's not just your Father. He chose you to be His partner. He chose you to grow like Him. To grow loving. To grow skillful. To grow caring and more capable. One who honors Him. One who grows to be like Him. One who cannot lose. No matter what you do, He says, I'm, gonna, I'm here. You will never lose. That should be your incentive. That should be your incentive to obey. That should be your incentive to pray. That should be your incentive to be on mission. You see that? If you say there's no incentive to do any of these things, you're still relying on your payout. You're still relying as if you deserve something. You're still relying on your works or your ability, what you're going to get out of it. And that brings us to the fourth objection. Well, then why can't God save everyone? Isn't he all-powerful? Why not? And the answer, I mean, this is the most simple answer, but it's also the most worked-through answer, even though it may not sound like it. The answer is, we're not sure. We know that God grieves at the decay of the world. We know that God could save everyone. We can say a lot of things, but in the end, we're not sure. That's why it's called amazing grace. It brings us a wonderment because we don't deserve it. Uh, We're no different than anyone else. There's nothing more humbling and yet more amazing than this. There's nothing that's going to give you greater security than this. This is the kind of love you want. This is the kind of love you need. And this brings us to the sixth truth. Why does God love us? Because you're skilled? Because you're good-looking? No. Not even because you're good. In fact, he came for you not because of your goodness. He didn't even come to you because of your humility. He came for you because of your sin, because of your sinfulness. Think about it this way. You're in love with somebody, the love of your life, and you know they're in love with you. And uh, you go to that person, him or her, and you ask that person, why do you love me? Uh, and uh, as in response, they'd never say to you, because it's ridiculous, they never say, well, I love you because you're humbler than everyone else. Or I, or I love you because you're better looking than everyone else. I mean, you might think that. You know, I love you because you have a nicer figure than everyone else. Or because you're pretty smart. And uh, because you're pretty smart, I know you can make money which is ultimately going to be good for me. I mean, you might think that. That would be horrible. Even if you thought that, you would never really say it that way. Nobody wants a love like that. Uh, That kind of love is going to change. That kind of love is going to change as your face or your body or your skills change. And that kind of love you can always lose. You want a love that sings because it's true love. You want a love that is difficult to describe because it's true and there's so much there. That's why poetry exists. Poetry is taking a lot of things that are hard to describe and uh, it puts them in words that are concise and in a way that leaves our imagination and our emotions and our hearts to kind of interpret in a, at a deeper level, right? We want a love that sings. 
We want a love that speaks poetry. That's why the Psalms exist. It's why the first thing when Adam saw Eve, he broke out into song. And we see poetry, the first poem in the Bible. Only Christians know there really is a love like that. It exists. God saw you from one end of the road. And he said, the moment he saw you, he foreloved us. He said, I've come undone. I'm choosing to bind my heart with this person's heart. I've chosen to, to love this person, even if it costs me my life. You ever see the movie King Kong? And lo, the beast beheld the beauty, and beauty stayed his hand. And from that day on, the beast knew that he was as good as dead. That's a true love. It's a liberating love. It's a love that shapes you. Uh, Harvey Kahn, Dr. Harvey Kahn, he was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, died uh, sometime in the 90s. Uh, he lived in Korea, actually, for about two decades. And uh, while ministering to these uh, prostitutes in Korea, uh, he tells a story about this one time uh, where he was trying to convince these little girls who were prostituting themselves in Korea. Uh, he was trying to tell them about uh, what it means to be a Christian, and they would respond, and they would say, I can't believe this. I really can't come to this because uh, I have so much shame in my life. Why would a God like that ever love me? A God like that would never love me. They have such poor self-images. And so uh, Dr. Khan, he would teach them about election. He would teach them about predestination. And he'd say, God in his sheer grace chooses you not because of what you've done or not done, not because of your goodness or your evil, but just because of sheer grace. And they'd ask, well, how do you know if you're elect? How do you know if God chose you? And this is the key. Dr. Khan would respond. He would say, is what I'm saying moving you? Does the gospel move you? Does the gospel grip you? Does it get you? Does it make you want Jesus more? They'd say, yes. Well, that means that God must be working in your heart because the Bible says that unless God is working in your heart, you can't want him. You don't want him. You can't even want God in your life unless God has put his love on you. And that love is a clean love. It's a, it's, it's a love that's so clean, it will clean you. It's a love that's so good, it'll make you good. It's a love that's so new and so redeeming, it'll redeem you. It'll change you. We can't even want God unless God wants us first. It's why it has to be primary. And if it's primary, then we receive it as a gift. There it is. That's what it is. God's grace will never be amazing until you understand that truth, friends. There'll never be any security in your life. There'll never be any peace in your life until you actually get that truth. Your heart will not melt unless you see that. Now see what? Jesus Christ on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Because he sinned? Because he made a mistake? Because he's got a bad record? Because he's a selfish person? Because he's a sinful person or an evil person? Because he deserved it? No. In the Garden of Gethsemane, on the night he was betrayed, Jesus prays this. He says, Father, take this cup from me. 
the cup he's talking about is the cup of God's wrath. The penalty for our sins. He says, take this cup from me, yet not my will, yours done. Why does he say this? Why does he do this? In other words, what he's saying is, I will choose to do this. If it's your will, I choose to do this. And on the cross, Jesus Christ cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, I have been cursed to death with every spiritual curse. God has turned his face away from me. He has forsaken me. Why? So you could be blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Jesus Christ was forsaken. He was cosmically separated from God. That's hell. He was cosmically separated from God. Jesus Christ became sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Why? He chose to. So we could be cosmically set apart for God. Jesus Christ was cosmically separated from God so that we could be cosmically set apart for God and be holy and blameless. On the cross, when he says, I've been forsaken. What he's saying is, I've come undone. I'm not just as good as dead, I'm dead. And I've chosen this. I've chosen to love God. I've chosen to love my people. And so to the end, do you know, he was still praising God. He was reciting the Psalms. He chose to love God. He chose to love his people. He says, I'm not as good as dead, I'm dead. I'm gonna, it's going to cost me my life. Because he chose it. Hebrews chapter 12. So let us fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. That means Jesus Christ had a choice to save his own life, but lose the ones he loves, or to lose his own life and to save the ones he loves. And it was his joy to die. That's the gospel. I'm going to wrap up. There are a lot of us here. We think we're better than other people. We think we've arrived. We think we're moving on up. So I'm going to speak to you like a, like a pastor should speak, like a father right now. Your life, life, forget about just your life, life in general is designed to beat you down, to make you struggle to choke on life circumstances until you die. Really, that's life. I mean, everything that you do to avert suffering, you know, build wealth, build a family, build a home, try to build a safety net, you're really trying to avert the inevitable. Life is designed to beat you down. Life is designed to teach you that truth, to just beat you down, that you cannot beat death. That your little victories are not real reality. Little victories are not real reality. They're just distractions from the only victory that you need. But God's grace is humbler and gentler than real life. It's humbler and gentler than, than life's lessons because everything you have is a gift. God's sheer grace in Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. And we can rest in that. The world says you got to work. The gospel says you can rest in him. The world says you got to earn. The gospel says on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. If you're a Christian, you need to see that God loves you because he loves you. 
because he chose you, because he stood on one end of the corridor of time and he foreloved you. You need to let that truth get in. See what it does. A lot of us, we're just so resistant because there's still something. We want to have some part in this. You got to let that truth go and you got to let that truth melt your heart. You know what it's going to do? It's going to lead you to worship. It's going to lead you to a genuine worship and a love for Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you may not like the idea of submitting to the king. But the thing is, we all need a king. We all need direction. We all want a north star, a true north. We all need a king. A king, an ultimate king will validate you. An ultimate king will save you. An ultimate king will represent you. Kings are sovereign. Kings have power so that when you're weak and you have a strong king, you're strong. When you are, are weak and, uh, and confused and you have a wise king, you're wise. To know that this king went through hell and died for you because of his love, not because of an obligation. He chose you. He didn't have to. He looked at you and he loved you. There is the validation and the wisdom. I mean, it's so wise. We still don't know. We say amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? We don't even know why he saved us. We don't know why he chose us. We just know that he loved us. He loves us. There is the validation and the power and the love you need. If you believe this, what is the prerequisite? You say, I need this. I need this in my life. And to be able to say that, that means God's already working in your life. So it doesn't even depend on how humble you are. In fact, it doesn't even depend on how well you depend. If you haven't even a semblance of wanting this in your life, desiring more of Jesus in your life, that means that God's already working in your life. Let that truth melt you. Dive into it. Plunge yourself into the grace of God and see what that does to your joy and your freedom. Then you'll have true freedom. Then you'll have uh, uh, a true rest, true peace, a real security, a lasting faith and love. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and uh, Lord, we, we come to you we're broken even in our own view of our brokenness. We're blind even in our own view of our blindness. And we come to you appealing to you, knowing that you're working in our lives. Father, will you open the doors of our heart to see you and to see ourselves for who you are, for who we are in reality. And let us see Christ and love him and come to him because of your love for us, your people. So, Father, as we respond in song in community groups today, Father, I pray that you would lead us to a place of worship, a place where we can live with gratitude because of your love for your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.